Hello, and welcome to the Picture the Scene podcast. It's usually hosted by myself, Andrew, and Rachel. Now, unfortunately, Rachel is sick at the moment. She's very ill, so she was unable to join us for the recording. This also means that Rachel was due to present the case this time around, but because she's not here, we'll have to postpone Rachel's case to next time around. Now, it's unfortunate. She's really sick, so please do send her your best wishes. She really wanted to record this, but obviously, you know, real life gets in the way sometimes. She was due to present a case on John Wayne Bobbitt and Lorraine Bobbitt. We mentioned them in the last episode and she wasn't aware of the case. But unfortunately, like I say, that'll be next time around. However, I do need to I do need to throw an apology out there. Sometimes I am not always right. And the last episode that we did, we I not we, I had a very vague recollection of the Bobby case. And my re- recollection was from very biased news in the nineteen nineties when there was a lot more prejudice. And so my opinions on the case that I said last time around, I admit were totally wrong. I just just didn't um, have much information left in my head and the only thing I had was from reading tabloid newspapers 20 or 30 years ago well 30 years ago so it's not a case where I should have fought before I spoke and so I apologize but when Rachel covers that case next time around we'll be able to go into in detail and actually provide you with some facts and some truth rather than my distant and very incorrect memory so Please do accept this apology on my behalf. I admit I was fully wrong on that one. Having said that, and we got actually that feedback that prompted me to have a look at this. Well, I'd already looked at it in a little bit of detail anyway after we recorded. Was because someone reached out on Twitter and and informed me. And that's really good. So this is why interaction on our socials is great. So please do reach out at in any way you want we're on facebook on picture the scene podcast and twitter or instagram with the handle at scene pod that's at s-e-e-n-e-p-o-d we're also happy to take cases as well so at, the, at this point i'm usually asking rachel how she is and what she's been up to like i say we know she's really ill so we send her i send her my best wishes it's really weird doing this alone now the very first episode i recorded alone and then rachel got involved from episode two onwards and it I wouldn't still be doing this if it was just me. So it's quite strange that Rachel's not here. And hopefully she'll be back for the next one. We've also had the question, why doesn't Rachel present as many cases as me? And I think for a couple of our listeners, there's a bit of perception that I prefer to do most of the cases. That's not the case. Rachel has a very demanding job and she's also got a very young family. So we are just grateful. I'm just grateful that she wants to be involved. So Rachel does cases where she has the capacity to do them. It has nothing to do with personal preference. If I had my way, I'd sit back and just listen to her all the time. I think it's great the way she writes and I love it when she presents a case. But every case I present is because... It does have one type of meaning to me, or another. I don't just present them just to try and, for popularity reasons. And po- well, probably the only exception being was the Christmas one that we did. Um, just because I wanted a Christmas theme, and I, I also wanted to prank Rachel. But other than that one, everyone has touched me in one way or the other. And this is no difference. This is not the most well-known case out there. Or possibly some would even say the most interesting case out there for some people. But when I was researching this and deciding to do it, there was a section that brought tears to my eyes. As it touched me, I thought it may touch others as well. So I am presenting it. Now I usually ask this to Rachel, so I'll ask it to everyone else instead. Or you're all ready for some true crime. So let's get started. If it's safe for you to do so, I'd like all of you to relax. 
Close your eyes and picture the scene. I want to take us back to the very early hours of July the 10th, 2018. And I want to take us to Eastbourne. Now Eastbourne is a coastal town that is also a tourist attraction on the south coast of England. It's about 50 miles south of London and roughly 20 miles away from Brighton. It's a reasonable sized town for the UK. It's got just over 100,000 people living there. People have lived there in one form or another since before the Romans conquered Britain. So quite a while. Now on this particular day, the 10th of July 2018, I want to concentrate on the very start of the day. The first few hours and possibly even the last few hours of the day before. With it being the middle of the night, it was towards the end of the third quarter of the moon phase which means there was only a sliver of moon showing. So that produced a much darker night than normal because there's not much moonlight. And if you combine that with the temperature being a reasonable 60 degrees Celsius, which is around 60 degrees Fahrenheit, it's a type of night that you wouldn't mind laying in the grass and watching the stars. I used to love doing that as a teenager. Maybe if you're in a relationship, which I never was as a teenager, but if you're in a relationship, doing it with your loved one while talking about your plans for the future together. There's always something special about looking t- towards the future and knowing you've got unlimited opportunity. And it's a, it's a young family that I want to introduce us to today. So they, maybe this couple might have done the exact same thing on nice nights in the past. I'm not sure. And I'd like to introduce you all to Gina Ingalls. Gina was 34 years old at the time and her partner was Toby Jarrett who was eight years younger than Gina at 26. And they also had a four-year-old son, Milo. And they both loved Milo very much. And they also had a family dog, who they'd only recently adopted from friends. So it was a new addition to the, it was a new addition to the family. But I'm sure one loved very much, especially by Milo. Little children and animals, they go together perfectly. So it was a young family with their future ahead of them. Now neither Gina or Toby were rich. They weren't famous. Neither of them had exciting jobs or stood out in one particular way or another. But you know what? That doesn't matter in life. Ultimately, what matters in life, what does matter in life, is to try and find happiness, to try and find that contentment. And if you're lucky enough, to try and find love as well. Now, those things this family had in abundance. Both their parents and Milo, their son, love was not lacking in that family. Now, he was known to be a typical four-year-old boy. He was happy. He was a little bit mischievous, but totally lovable, and he was most certainly loved. Now, on this night, though, they were not watching the stars. Instead, they were fast asleep in their respective beds. Gina and Toby in the master bedroom of the home, in bed together, asleep, and Milo in his own bedroom, with a dog sleeping in the room with Milo. So, you can imagine how that was. They go to bed, they put, before they go to bed, Milo goes to bed early in the evening, obviously, he wants the dog in with him and the dog wants to be in with him because he's probably been showing him love all day long. Now, the home was 9 Croxton Way in Eastbourne. It was a two-bedroom terrace house, the third house from the end of the street. It backed out into open fields. And on the other side of those fields, not too far away, is Shine is Shinewater Lake, which is in Shinewater Park. While it may not be an affluent or trendy area, it was home to them and it was a good place to live for them as a young family. At around 1am that morning, Toby woke up with a feeling that he was suffocating. The air felt thick around him, 
So he turned on the bedside light and the bedroom was full of black smoke. He could hardly see. He immediately woke Gina up, whose first thought was her son Milo. So she, without a second thought, ran into his room to get him. It was only next door to their room. They didn't live in a big house, so it wasn't a long distance. When she had Milo, she started to turn round to go back into the main bedroom where Toby was. But before she could, Toby felt an explosion under his feet. His whole, his whole body felt like it was burning. He went to the main window of the bedroom, and now their bedroom was on the back of the house, so it overlooked the rear garden. Now, while he could not see, because of the smoke, he thought he could sense Gina and Milo behind him. He thought that if he climbed out of the window and lowered himself down, so that he was dangling from the window ledge with his fingers, he could then drop down into the back garden. And then, once he was in the back garden, he could catch Milo and then help Gina down as she climbed out of the window. But that plan didn't work out. Instead of slowly dropping down into the garden, he slipped and he fell out of the window. He broke his pelvis and he had a spinal fracture as a result of the fall. Now, irrespective of this, he still got up. His thought was still on on his partner and their child. He got to his feet and he was screaming for Gina and Milo. But they never appeared out of at the window. He was just screaming and screaming. Now the neighbours on either side of them, they now was woken by the sound of his screaming. And then further brought around from their slumber by the sight and smell of the house next to them on fire. Now I'll pop a video of the house on fire and a picture of it afterwards on our social medias. The emergency services were called out. So the ambulance, the police, the fire brigade. But sadly Gina and their four-year-old son Milo, along with their adopted dog, they never made out of the house alive. They all died of smoke inhalation. Now, when firefighters could enter the house, they found the three bodies together. I'm sorry, this is still making me choke up. I know what's coming next. Even when I'm writing this, it, it still had me reaching for the tissue. So, they all had died underneath the window of Milo's bedroom. They were mere inches from safety. The position of Gina's body, when they found it, the position was crouching over her son, trying to protect him from the flames and the heat. So in life, she loved her son more than anything. And in death, well, she died protecting him, trying to protect him. Her last thought and act was to try and save him, to try and shield him from the heat. And a loyal dog was beside them. I do have tears in my eyes now. I'm glad no one can see me. Probably good that Rachel's not here looking at me now. Now, Toby, if you remember, Toby, if you remember, had survived the fire. But he wasn't in good shape. He was rushed to the hospital. And aside from the broken pelvis and spinal fracture, he also had 30% of his body burned. On arrival in the hospital, they had to place him in a medically induced coma to try and save his life. Now he stayed in that coma for a month, eventually being awoken from it with the physical scars from the burning of his body and also the mental scars from the loss of his family, they will stay with him forever. He is still alive, he did recover, but both the physical and mental scars, I imagine, they're never going to leave him. They're never going to... I can't imagine what that's like. Can you? It's just, imagine every day. Like when you lose a loved one, the loss becomes bearable over time, but it never goes away. You st- I mean, we've all lost loved ones. We know you. You still think of them. It still hurts, but it numbs a little bit. And he's going to have not only those memories of how they died, but he's never going to be able to forget, forget because whenever he looks at a third of his body, he's going to see the scars which remind him immediately of what happened. I can't imagine that. That's so terrible. What caused the fire that ripped through nine Croxton Way in Eastbourne on that night? 
taking the lives of Gina, Milo, and also their beloved dog. Was it a tragic accident, or was it something more sinister? Now, you know, as I wrote that line, I sat back and I thought to myself, what would actually be better? Would it be better to say, would it be better to have a tragic accident, or would it be better for someone intentionally setting a fire? Then I realised what a stupid question that is, because both would have resulted in the same outcome, death. Now, I guess if it's an accident, you can try and retain some hope in humanity, that there are people that wouldn't actively choose to do such a thing. But as we know... You out there listening, you're on this journey with me. You know that this wouldn't be an accident. The fire was deliberately set. This was, it was an immediate suspicion for the authorities that it was arson. Due to the emergency services and the neighbours seeing a petrol can on fire next to the front door and a lighter on the floor next to it. Both of these would become vital pieces of information, vital pieces of evidence for a subsequent murder case. Now, later forensic testing would confirm that these were the items that were used to set the fire. The forensic scientists would find multiple sources of DNA on both the petrol can and the lighter. And I'll come back to that those two things a little bit later. But examination of the house had also shown that petrol had been poured through the letterbox of the home. Uh, they, with the way that the fire spread, and also they found petrol soaked into the underneath the doormat that they had as you walked into the front door. So they they could tell that petrol had been poured through and then set alight. Now the fire had quickly spread through the house. Gina and Toby and and Milo and the dog, though they couldn't have prevented this. And because the fire spread quickly through the house, it it led to the events I described earlier and the subsequent death of both Gina and Milo. Now because unfortunately people's multiple people's DNA was on both the petrol can and the lighter. It wasn't a case of someone or some people being quickly identified as the killers because there was too many different bits of DNA to say it was definitely this person. It gave them lots of leads and instead the police actually initially had, they had 55 potential suspects thanks to that DNA, not just the DNA, but other evidence they had collected as part of their investigations. Now two people... They were eventually arrested and and taken to trial some two years after the fire. Those two people were Jacob Barnard and Andrew Milne. Now, Jacob Barnard and Andrew Milne, they'd not known each other for long when they allegedly started the fire. Jacob was a self-confessed drug dealer and Andrew was known to be an enforcer for various criminals, mainly drug dealers in that local area. Now, while they had not known each other for long, it was well documented that they had become close friends. They drank together, they partied together, they took cocaine together, but also they worked together as a drug dealer and enforcer, as well as socializing together. So how did they do it? How did they allegedly do this? And how did the police find out it was them? So to begin with, I spoke about multiple amounts of DNA, so one of those pieces of DNA on the lighter was Jacob's, the drug dealer's. And on the fuel can, it was Andrew's, the enforcer. But like I said, because there was multiple people's DNA on those items, they couldn't just depend on that evidence. If that was the only evidence they had, they wouldn't be convicted. Now also, in addition to this, number plate recognition showed a car owned and insured by Jacob, a 4x4 Mercedes SUV, on the night of the 9th going into the 10th in the vicinity of Croxton Way. And it showed the car being driven there from the area where Jacob lived and then back again. Albeit via, they went back by a very convoluted way. It was going back again. Now Barnard's phone 
so Jacob's phone, it had been disconnected between 11.11pm on the night of the 9th, only coming back on at a minute past 3am on the morning of the 10th, and Mill's phone being turned off at 11pm on the 9th, and coming back on at 4.21am. Now you may think, well this is the middle of the night, does it matter if the phones are turned off? But further examination of the phones showed that this was extremely unusual for the pair of them because it was traditionally the busiest time for them on their mobile phone for the usage with calls and texts i guess because one was a drug dealer and one was an enforcer and more people took drugs at that time so turning them off it was highly unusual for them but again more evidence would be needed there was also evidence from two nights earlier on the 7th cctv showing the same journey at the same time by them with the same car but with one crucial bit of difference here this time the police thought this was a trial run but this time their phones had not been turned off they actually taken them with them so they could be tracked so they knew on the 7th they'd done the exact same journey now in court andrew the enforcer would try to explain these two journeys as a visit to a friend's mum. it's a very strange strange time to visit a friend's mum. but sadly for him the story sounded really far-fetched in court and also additionally more probably more importantly Jacob wouldn't actually confirm that is what happened. So Andrew was saying one thing and Jacob was saying another thing. Additionally to that, a third person, a John Tabakis, on the 10th of July, so the day of the fire, later that day, drove the Mercedes 4x4 to Portugal. But not straight to Portugal, they drove it via two other European countries. And that was at the request of Jacob. So Jacob then... Additionally, on a day after, on the 11th, he followed the car to Portugal. Now again, all of this together sounds suspect, but it was not complete proof that they did anything. So in addition to this, and this is probably the key piece of evidence as well, what ties it all together, there was a witness account that was provided. Now that witness in court testified that Jacob, the dealer, had told him that the car had been removed to Portugal due to it containing evidence that it'd be that had been used in a crime. And specifically, he actually told this person that that crime was to was someone's house being set on fire. So during the trial, neither defendant could explain any of these bits of evidence that was put to them. They either provided false alibis, which turned out to be false and could be proven not to be true. They either said they couldn't remember anything, like vital details, or they created unbelievable stories to explain what happened. So this went... They, both pled not guilty and they it was a jury trial obviously because it was crown court and a jury found them both guilty guilty of the murder of gina and of milo but also the attempted murder of toby in addition to this the guy who drove the car he was found guilty of uh, perverting the course of justice so some people i have to put this out there i personally think that they're guilty but some people feel that they were set up who set them up and why uh, i'm not too sure there's no actual evidence to say they had been set up. Not by the police, by other criminals. But it just seems all very suspect. And a jury of their peers found them guilty. Now I know that that doesn't mean they were guilty. Because obviously miscarriage of justice can happen. But we can't assume every person is not guilty. Just because people say that they are. So Jacob Barnard and Andrew Milne. They both receive life sentences. Which is mandatory for murder. And Jacob receiving a minimum term of 36 years with no time served taken into consideration because he was actually already in prison on a different matter. And Milne receiving a minimum term of 34 years 
with almost a year already served prior to conviction while he was awaiting trial. Now, the reason Jacob was already in prison, because he was sentenced. Remember, he went to Portugal on the 11th of July and he was actually arrested by the Portugal Portuguese police. Not for this, but for drugs and weapons offences. They found a vast quantity of drugs and a vast quantity of weapons in his house. So, and the reason why the British police could actually arrest him for this crime was because after he got sentenced to eight years in Portugal, he was extradited to the UK to serve that term. So when he landed, that's when they could arrest him for this. But why did they do it? We know what happened. We know who did it and how they did it, but why? Well, it turns out that Toby, do you remember Gina's partner? He owed Jacob a small amount of money for drugs that he had obtained from him. While the amount was never fully confirmed, it is widely believed to be £400. But some reports say it was £2,500. So it's one of the two. Now, £400 is roughly just under 500 American dollars. And £2,500 is just over $3,000. So either way, whichever amount it actually was, is that what a young mother and a four-year-old child's life is worth? I mean, even if Gina and Toby hadn't been in the house with Milo, is that even what a dog's life is worth, to murder a dog? It's such a tiny amount for such a brutal crime. But it seems that Jacob, and again, he boasted this to the witness, he did it to send a message to other customers of his that they had to pay him or else. So this was for a message. This was just to show that he he couldn't be... His debts couldn't be ignored. Now, the family of Gino and Milo, they released a statement after the conviction, describing them both as shining lights, saying that Milo was a beautiful little boy, so full of fun and smiles, and that Gino was a free-spirited person with a big heart. Now, I said it at the beginning, but when I was reading up on his case, I'm really not ashamed to admit it, I did actually cry. When I was writing it, I shed more tears. Because all I could think about was that smiling boy from the photographs, and I'll pop him up on the social media. And then also how their bodies were found. Gina, trying to protect Milo from the heat, crouched over him. So tragic. and so unnecessary as well. I mean, I never said that Toby and Gina were perfect. And Toby has to live his life knowing what happened. But to die over such a small debt. To die over any debt. Come on. Is any amount of money worth a life? It's not, is it? But to die over such a small debt, it's just so tragic and un- unnecessary. Now, I can't ask Rachel what she thinks about this case now, but what do you all think of this case out there? So for one last time, I'd like, if it's safe for you to do so, I'd like all of you to relax, close your eyes and picture the scene. For most people, we either don't have much in life or we've had times when it's been hard, really hard. What you do have, however, and what you treasure the most is family, is friends, is the people that you love. Think about that family member right now. What would you do to try and protect them? Because we know what Gina did to try and protect Milo. So thank you all. Please do go and rate and subscribe us. And also, True Crime B&B, Murder on My Street, Seeing Red, The Unseen, Lady Justice, UK True Crime, The True Crime Enthusiast. There's so many good podcasts out there. Go and listen to some of those as well. Thank you all. Those as well. Thank you.